welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 112th episode, I'll be talking to Casey Martin Stone, archaeologist, comedian, and host of the Dig Me Up Later podcast about nature and the Australian wilderness. Along the way, we discuss the times when nature is too beautiful to be tasteful, how to scream with your mouth closed, and how the flies may be bad, but the butterflies are good. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail, and let you know how you can become a guest on the Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? Oh, oh okay. Oh, well, I was going to say that's hard because I don't think of myself as a beautiful and unique snowflake. But I am Casey Martin-Stone and I am Australia's only archaeologist comedian. So that's unique, if not beautiful. <laughs> and you're also the host of an upcoming podcast. I am the host of a podcast, so it's called Dig Me Up Later and we look at what archaeologists of the future will think of us now. And I'm also a public speaker. I speak about cultural heritage management and how people deal with dead bodies and the warning signs of burnout. (laughs) And since we're an audio medium, I'll kind of paint the surroundings for a moment. We are currently in the bowels of the Good News Week offices. We are at Fox Studios in Sydney. Yeah, which is very odd walking in and walking past the memorabilia of a show I have enjoyed for many, many years. And I would like to say I was extremely cool about it. Those people who know me, I'm usually not cool about these sorts of things. <laughs> you were great. You didn't go, oh my God. And they're like, there's all these <laughs> naked baby photos, effectively, of all of Australia's favourite stars. Yeah, and just walking in, no bigs, and only let slip later on after we were in a closed office that I said, did you see how cool I was just <laughs> So strange. I work here. I have an office here because I work on co-productions with the Good Newsweek TV crew. But I've been incredibly lucky in my entire career to have worked behind the scenes in amazing places doing incredible things. So I started out working at the Museum and Art Gallery of the Northern Territory in conservation and then collection management and exhibition support and all of those things like there is... So much that happens that's cool in a museum collection environment and I think that thrill of being involved in something new and unique and unusual is really something that appeals to me. No, absolutely. And I actually had known you were an archaeologist. I didn't know you were a comedian until, because we follow each other on Twitter, and at one point I like clicked through to your website, and it's almost entirely comedy-focused. Yeah. And I was like, what is this? I've got two websites, one for archaeology and one for comedy. Like you said, you have a double-sided business card. I do. It's really funny because I, well, here we go. This is going to sound like name-dropping. I was at dinner the other night with Richard Feidler. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
actually, it was so cool. So I went to a gig. It was the Big Squid podcast, which you may be familiar with. It's Justin Hamilton's podcast, live recording at Giant Dwarf in Sydney. And then all of the performers that were on it went out to dinner later, and I'm friends with a bunch of them, and Justin's like, come to dinner. And so most of them I knew. I, I hadn't met Richard and his wife, and there was another guy where I'm like, I know I know you, but I couldn't place him. Like, I knew he was something big in Australian culture and I was kind of embarrassed like that but like oh, I just can't put the name on it and it was because he wasn't wearing his red skivvy it was <laughs> Murray from the Wiggles and I'm like oh this is so cool uh, <laughs> my daughter's gonna love this <laughs> you know? but yeah I was chatting to Richard and we decided to keep in touch and I'm like let me give you my card um, and I was just like like I must have sort of half flipped it as I passed it to him and he's like oh <laughs> you know? archaeology comedy it's odd. I'm not the only archaeologist comedian in the world. I'm not that special. Oh, well, I was <laughs> going to say, someone somewhere who just, like, sat up, like someone walked over their grave and it's like someone just said they were the only archaeologist comedian. You can't be happy with that. Well, I'm the only one in Australia, but there's five of us around the world. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your field of archaeology? Cultural heritage management, basically. So I run a consultancy that covers the Northern Territory and I look at Indigenous Macassan and historical heritage. Our Indigenous and Macassan heritage is automatically protected by law, so anyone that wants to develop anything anywhere, whether it's roads or airports or mines or whatever, they need to check they're not impacting anything that's legally protected, so that's what I do. I go bushwalking with Aboriginal people on their country and we record rock art and human remains, stone arrangements, occupation sites, which is really fun and cool, and then we just say, you can't go there. So, <laughs> it's nice. It's great fun. Because the territory is the territory, a lot of the country is incredibly rugged. And so I have these days where we're dropped in by helicopter to hike all day and then helicoptered out again at the end of the day. And it's awesome. I love it. Yeah. And then there's the historical stuff, which isn't automatically protected. That's protected through a nomination and registration process. And so for all kinds of heritage, I do significance assessments and write reports and cultural heritage management plans and all the boring side of the job. Excavation is quite uncommon in this background. So because your first recommendation is always to protect something in yeah. situ. Rather not touch it. Yeah. yeah. If it can't be avoided, then there's a process of consulting with all of the stakeholders and making sure there's a plan for managing it all well and then you get to do the excavations and they're fun yeah because it's nice to see a view of it where it's like no it's it's fine right where it is yeah it's fine for the people for whom it means something to for yeah. to leave it there as opposed to having to dig it up look at it and go yeah that was probably we probably should have left that there yeah and sometimes there's sites that are at risk from erosion or other factors and that's a lot more common these days with coastal sites particularly in climate change and so salvage archaeology is a thing where you have to go and rescue it some people call it rescue archaeology so yeah no, that's cool so let's start with the basics then where about did you grow up i grew up in northwest new south wales beyond the black stump literally so <laughs> if you're looking from sydney so yeah about an hour west of gunnedah i grew up on a farm see the majority of my time in australia has been spent in sort of sydney and sydney's surround so tell me a little bit about the area it's on the liverpool plains so we had a farm that was a thousand acres and it was right on the edge of the liverpool plains sort of the foothills that go west to the warren mongols around coonabarabran and so the farm looked east across the plain and at night time around the surrounding hills you could see the glow of Malali, which was the village 25 k's away or something 
Gunnada, which was an hour away, and Tamworth, which was two hours away. Like, and it, and so the skies out there are amazingly clear and beautiful. At Coonabarabran, you have the Siding Springs Observatory because it is such a clear sky, and so yeah, you could just get lost in all of the stars. I used to be a bit of an insomniac as a teenager and I would stare out the window and I used to be able to tell the time of night by the position of the Southern Cross. That's cool. Yeah. it was. See, that's the kind of thing you read about in a book where someone will glance up and it'll be like, we've got four hours till morning. And it's like, <laughs> but to see it actually in place, it's like, no, that, that would be good. Yeah. And you're right, though, about the big sky. And it's something I'd only ever seen in the, like, deep prairie of Canada where it's yeah, like Saskatchewan sort of country. Yeah, so it's like yeah. extremely, extremely flat areas. You don't realize because most of my childhood I either lived on coasts or in Ontario, which is Canadian Shield forest. Yeah. You know, more rocks than mountains. Mm-hmm. And then you get somewhere that is extremely flat. And it's like going from standard definition to widescreen. Like yes. you feel the edges of your periphery are different. Absolutely. And so it is something where when you try to describe it, they go, well, yeah, it's the horizon. You're like, no, it's it's different. There is yeah, a difference. Actually, this yeah. is really interesting because Darwin is in a very flat part of the country. The only kind of mountains we have around there are the Arnhem Land Escarpment, which is kind of 80 to 100 metres high. It's not big and I have that same sort of a sense of the world opening up when I crossed the East Alligator River which is the border between Kakadu National Park and Arnhem Land Mm -hmm. and Kakadu National Park has a lot of woodland that's close to the road and you're driving Mm -hmm. through and nothing looks spectacular until you get to the, the signposted sites within it and so then you cross this river with all the crocodiles and you come out on the East Alligator floodplain and you see in the distance the sandstone hills and all of my muscles relax like it's like (laughs) coming home it's just beautiful but the funny thing about living in a place with no vertical relief is we moved there when my daughter Phoebe was eight and when she was 20 something she came to meet up with me in Vienna when I was there for a conference and we took a night train to Innsbruck after the conference checked into an Airbnb and went out onto the balcony and the guy was, you know, sort of giving us directions of how to find everything. We went out on the balcony and you could see the lights of Innsbruck and then there was this really black part of the sky and then the stars up above. And I said, hey, Phoebes, check that black thing. You know what that is? She was like, what? And I'm like, it's a mountain. (laughs) (laughs) And she was like, oh, my God. Her mind was completely blown because this thing was huge. Like, it's the Alps. (laughs) So it's not one of those piddly mountains. It's the Alps. It's a mountain mountain. And, yeah, and so we went in Innsbruck. They've got this, like, a chairlift kind of, not a chairlift, but a cable car kind of thing yeah, yeah goes right up to the top and really nice restaurant and tobogganing area mm. and so we went up there and you could go for a little walk and get to the top of this mountain and the top of the mountain is not a flat thing to stand on it's nope. a knife edge of rock <laughs> yeah. and you look across that knife edge of rock and there's just alps like chocolate box mountains like you'd expect that to be a horrifically tacky like velvet painting on a motel wall yeah but you look at it and you think but that's just what it is yeah it's like when you get an especially good but gaudy sunset you know and you look and you're like that can't be and then you like cut yourself and you're like of course of course it's real yeah well see darwin's famous for its sunsets as well and we have massive wet season clouds the storms are spectacular well in many ways and i will always sing the praises of darwin i totally love living there people will be sick of me but 
the sunsets are so spectacular so often you start to take them for granted mm-hmm. and Litchfield National Park is our closest national park and it's got waterfalls and the last couple of years of my marriage my husband was a park ranger in the park so he had a house there and we would just go down for the weekends mm. and so Phoebe that was as she was in high school and this is just life like you just go and you swim in a waterfall and you know that's life and then a few <laughs> years later she had a friend come from London and he was staying with her and Phoebe's like, oh, let's go to Litchie for the weekend. So she drove to, and he was just, oh my God, this is what I came to Australia for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she was like, oh, but this is like, there's better ones. <laughs> no, this is enough. <laughs> yeah. I remember that when I lived in Vancouver, mm-hmm. Vancouver Harbour is not nice. It's not a particular, it's a working harbour. So Yeah, I like uh, Stanley Gardens. Oh, like Stanley really Gardens and, and Stanley Park as well. It's fantastic, except for if you were to say, go to a beach on the Pacific, oh, yeah. there's not one really. And it's like, it's a different Pacific than walking to Cronulla or, yeah. or you know, Nelson Bay or somewhere like yeah. that. And just being like, it's a very different feeling. And I, and I remember having that feeling that you just you just mentioned about, you know, this is what I came to Australia for. Mm. I was like, I was thinking it was like maybe my like third week here. We went to Cronulla and sort of got to Main Beach and turned left and just kept walking. Wow. And I got to a certain point and like I couldn't see back where we were. Yep. And it was just like, it was the, the Green Hill Dunes on the side and it was just ocean as far as I could see. And I'm like, this is what I pictured, what yeah. I expected when I was landing. I did not expect Sydney Airport, which is a, <laughs> another thing entirely. How, how was it different to what you expected? Oh, I don't know. See, I, in much in the way that in a lot of Canada, you're never terribly far from wilderness, right? Yeah. Even in you know your, some of your major cities, there are still chunks of places where, yeah, if you were to start walking, you could easily get lost and be lost for a long time. Yet, and it's like there are even subdivisions in New Brunswick, which is on the East Coast, Mm -hmm. where, you know, you would be in a subdivision and you could walk and you're like, there's two sort of cul-de-sacs here and you could walk between them. Yeah. And you could see the part where they had stopped clearing and had kind of made the edges of the place. And you look and you can look on your phone and be like, oh yeah, I could walk in 25 Ks in that direction and not see another human being. Yeah. You know, this is... That's something I really love, that sensation of being utterly alone in the wilderness is my favourite sensation in the world. Because I I work with Indigenous people on their country a lot, I'm not often alone out there. There was a job that I did on Groot Island in the Gulf of Carpentaria, and I think it's the third largest island in the country. So I did the baseline heritage study of the island. We surveyed two-thirds of it and did all of the islands around the island. But when we were doing the southernmost part of it, there are no settlements there. It takes five hours of four-wheel driving to get to the spot that's as far as you can drive to. And then we had a helicopter to pick me up and put me over. And and so we spent about four weeks there in two lots. And the traditional owners were too frail to hike with me in, in this really rugged country so I would have whole days to myself and come back into camp and they would spend their days fishing and collecting and I'd come home and we'd have like painted crayfish for dinner and such a hard life and there's like oysters (laughs) on the rocks as you're walking yeah but the sensation of just standing there and looking out and knowing that as far as the horizon you could see in any direction I was the only person that was so peaceful and I came to this I was thinking another thought, and I can't remember how that train, how I got to that train of thought. But I like, oh, Canada. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. So I was in Canada. I went there for my fortieth birthday, mm-hmm. and I spent a night in Vancouver, and then drove up to Whistler. Spent a week there. Jumped off a bridge for my birthday. Very nice. Tied to bungee, um, <laughs> which was 
terrifying but great. And then after that, I, I spent three weeks basically hiking. And so from Whistler, I went to the northeast and around down to the Rockies. And on the way, I was going to do this lake walk. And when I came up to it, there were about a thousand cars. The car park was overflowing. People were parked down the highway. And I went, fuck that. Like, yeah. I, I hate hiking. I've done it in Tassie, went to Wineglass Bay, hiking with 800 other people. And it's just like you're in step going up these formed paths. And it's not, it's not my, the same. Yeah. No. So I just kept driving. I drove past. And I came to a bend in the road. And there were two cars parked on the shoulder. And I thought, oh, I wonder what's there. So I pulled over. And there was a little walking path, like not a a formed path, but worn by people's feet. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll just go an hour out and an hour back and see where I end up. And and it was this amazing, I think it was a state forest of some sort or some prior conservation area that's not a marked national park. And so I went and I was an hour out, almost an hour out, and I got to what was obviously a border of mm. the land that had previously been cleared and been a road but hadn't been maintained and so there was growth of grasses and plants over my head and then the forest on either side. So when I was in the forest, there was very little undergrowth because the light didn't get down there and it was beautiful because there were like little squirrel dinners everywhere. It was just amazing and I could hear the sound of a waterfall as I was walking along this track but it was also a wild animal superhighway because I saw <laughs> tracks and scats everywhere that I was trying to identify. I saw wolf scat, I saw elk footprints, I saw stuff and I was walking along this thing and just got the sensation I was being watched. And, and I couldn't see through this thicker mm-hmm. vegetation. So I went, mm, nobody knows where I am. <laughs> <laughs> like I've got my PLB, my personal locator beacon, and yeah. I've registered it for Canada. It, it will call emergency services if I have time to set it off. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I might just turn around now and head back to the car. And as I was going back to the car, I came across two young women, sort of early 20s, and I said, Where, like, what is this place? Where am I? And they're like, oh, there's, a, um, there's an overnight hiking hut about 20 k's in, so it's a locals-only kind of a thing. And I'm like, You just cool. come across it, yeah. Yeah, and that, I think, was... I was going to say it's my favourite hike I did in Canada, but I'd actually say it was my second favourite hike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love hiking. It's the, the thing that makes me feel most... At peace and strong and capable and free and yeah all those things I like to be that's fantastic so growing up in northwest New South Wales what sort of kid were you I think I was uh I was gonna say I was a shit of a kid but I wasn't (laughs) we had a lot of freedom on the farm and so we were always expected to be playing outside I loved books I've got two brothers and two sisters and I was the only bookish one so often they were outside and I wasn't but we just had this total freedom we had push bikes we could go and play down the shed or we could go uh, so I used to ride my bike around the outside of the farm it wasn't the whole farm but it was nine kilometers around the whole thing or I used to just go for a run down the road the nearest neighbors were a kilometer away and then there was another neighbor about four kilometers away and I'd run down this gravel driveway and I remember once because I'd go to the four kilometers neighbor and back because I thought eight k's was a nice run Um, (laughs) I'm bored so I'll just go for a run (laughs) Um, and I was almost at their place and I could see just further up the road four wedgetail eagles on the ground which is very rare Mm -hmm. and so I decided to go closer and they were eating 
a fox that was roadkill. Mm. And I got so close I could hear their beaks shattering the bones. It was just amazing. And then they all just sort of like sat there regally and looked at me and I went, I think I'll go that way. (laughs) It was a bit like, (laughs) yeah, I love the wildlife. I don't like to get too close. With the work I do in the Territory, I've had some very close encounters that wouldn't rate highly on any work health and safety assessment. (laughs) So I've stepped on a couple of snakes and I've been charged by wild horses, wild buffalo, wild cows. Is that all? Yeah. Oh, and spiders on my face. (laughs) Spiders are the one thing I'm terrified of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, and I I am a pro spider, but I also accept that, yeah, there are some of them you don't want to fuck with at all. You don't want them on your face. I learned I can scream with my mouth closed. (laughs) (laughs) It was so funny because, well, after the fact it was funny, I wear a bandana around my neck so that I can pull it up over my nose for dust or smoke or whatever. And it just protects my decolletage from sunburn. Uh, and so I had this on and I walked through a cobweb at some stage. I went, oh, okay, yeah, no spider that, yeah. on me. And so I keep walking. And for some reason I looked down and just as I did, it walked off my bandana and onto my ah. chin. <laughs> yeah. And I screamed with my mouth closed at the same time as I grabbed a handful of my bandana and obviously the string under my hat and just ripped it off. The bandana should not go over my head. Nope. But it did. And just like ripped it off and threw it on the ground. And this spider was front legs up going, come at me, bro. And I'm like, oh, can I have my hat back, please? <laughs> yeah, don't like them. That's the thing is that people always talk about the dangerous spiders in Australia, but what they don't mention is all the webs. I learned this oh, when I was yeah. attempting, like even somewhere fairly urban, like I used to live in Marrickville mm-hmm. and I used to go for runs in the morning through the old warehouses there. Cause mm-hmm. I, I could find, I would want to do like a half hour kind of out and back because I was going at like five in the morning. I would run with my all hand in front of me yes. because every single spider was like, all right, well, here's where I'm going to set up for the day. Yeah. And then some idiot human comes blundering through and ruins their whole setup. Exactly. And also, yeah, you get to see humans doing their wonderful dance of, <laughs> I'm tempted to get a spider off me. Yeah. Well, so I work in um, some stringy bark woodland up in mm-hmm. Western Arnhem Land, and they just string themselves between the trees at face height. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe sometimes two, three meters across. And it's like, I couldn't believe it. Like, it, we're out in Ryan, and we've got a pretty big backyard. And at one point, I noticed that it was from the gate near the car to our lemon tree mm-hmm. which is three and a half meters and yeah. i'm like but i walk through there every single day to go water the veggie patch at the back yeah so i'm like why would you pick this one spot i don't know maybe you know moss go through that way or whatever the, yeah. but i'm just like i'm sorry man this is a bad decision that you have made i am not <laughs> going to validate your bad decision by walking around it for a week and a half until it comes down yeah. so i'm going to walk forward with my hose in front of me yeah. and you will have to deal with it i'm sorry yeah but i mean i think i've seen two snakes in the wild in 18 years in Sydney. Most of the time, because, you know, they hear you coming and they're like, I don't want any of that, and they'll go away. Yeah, pretty much. Some do, some don't. When I'm doing field work, I'll probably see about three a week, and you just stand still and let them go. Yeah. I prefer it when I see them with enough time to just stand still. So there was one... Stamp your feet, make a bit of noise, and they're just like, oh. Yeah, I do walk fairly heavily when I go, just hoping that they'll fuck off. But there was one time I was by myself and I was charging up a steep hill and it had all been burnt. And so it was just this rocky area. And as I was charging up, I heard something move and I instantly froze. And because of the steepness of the slope, it was around about my head height and it was a juvenile brown snake. So they have enough venom to kill 20 people. Yep, and you're just one. 
and it was going holy shit there's a monster and so it was looking for somewhere to hide and when i'd frozen still one foot was solidly on the ground and the other foot my heel was on a rock but the rest of my foot was out in space and so this snake came down the hill looking for somewhere to hide tried to curl up under my boot by that stage i had my camera out of my pocket and i'm like fuck this is so cool terrifying but cool so i videoed it and photoed it and it couldn't fit under my boot so it just kept going and yeah and so that was you know honestly that's very inconvenient of you to have a small boot that a snake couldn't fit under i know like how dare i oh god so many snake stories Uh (laughs) my favorite until i came to australia my favorite snake story was my dad used to ride his motorcycle through the south of the u.s Mm -hmm. and apparently one of the major dangers there is that you either pull over or uh, you know have a break and a rattlesnake will curl up on the top of your engine block because it's warm yes and will think this is a great place Mm -hmm. to curl up under the gas tank of a motorcycle, you know, where you sit across and your thighs are right on the other side and of it. they come out. Yeah, and it's like they either come out or you hear the rattle, and then it's, and how quickly can I get off this motorbike without spooking this thing yeah. that will strike me if I move too quickly? Yeah. And so I imagine there's a delicate dance to be done, similar to if a snake was under your boot. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that you say a delicate dance because there's this thing that I do called the dance of uncomfortable distance. <laughs> Okay. And I do this with really big wild animals. Not crocodiles, because yeah. they are fucking fearless. Yeah. <laughs> um, so crocodile doesn't care what you're doing. Exactly. If you see a crocodile, if it's easy first, run. Um, yeah, if you see other things, don't run. Like, they will chase you. Yeah. So this is the thing. When I went to Canada to go hiking, I had to learn what to do if you see a bear or a cougar or whatever. Yeah, so top end, the dance of uncomfortable distance is... Animals are defending themselves. They're defending their territory. And it's usually the solo males, the adolescent males and the bulls that are pretty cranky. And so one day I was walking with a guy who was a fieldie for a mine exploration company. We started at a billabong and there was a bull about a kilometre away from us. And I said, we're going to have to keep an eye on that. Mm-hmm. And he, and this was his first week in the territory. <laughs> and he's like, oh, why? And I'm like, oh, because sometimes they don't like yeah. people. And so we were walking in a straight line away from the billabong. And this bull was tracking parallel to it, staying about a kilometre away. So I'm like, still there, still there, still there. And about 15 minutes later, gone. And he's like, oh, that's great. And I'm like, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) And so we just kept walking and we are going in this straight line. It's open woodland, but fairly dense and with grass up to your chest sort of thing. And all of a sudden I just stopped and threw my arms out and went, stop because it was about as far away as you are to me now, just (laughs) staring at me through the grass. So about, well, we're about two metres away. It was about three metres away. And Sam's behind me going, fuck, 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 fuck. And I'm like, okay, just stop, just breathe. I said, okay, we have options now because the bull was just standing there. It was just staring. It wasn't pouring the dirt. It wasn't breathing hard. No threat display, nothing. It was just like, I'm here. I see you. And we're like, Gotcha. Uh, (laughs) And Sam's like, do I run, do I climb a tree? There were no trees thick enough to climb. And I said, if you run, it'll chase you. So I'll just let it. (laughs) So I don't recommend that one. I said, if you turn your back and walk away, it will follow you. And if anything spooks it, it will... Trample you. Yes. (laughs) So we've got two choices. You can walk backwards slowly until it gets bored. 
or we can do what I call the dance of uncomfortable distance. Well, first thing I said to him was don't fucking look it in the eye. Like, mm. do not stare at it. Look at the ground. Listen to me. And he's like, okay. I said, okay. So the dance of uncomfortable distance, I look at my GPS that I'm holding in my hand just to have something to look at. And I take one step forward. Mm. Not, I'm looking at the peripheral vision. Yeah, yeah to what it's doing and then so I half a step in this case because it's so close so I take a step forward and I stand there the bull will take a step back and then I do it again and he does it again so I explained this to Sam and I said it's risky he's there he's not happy he's not super cranky yet but he might be soon so that's our choices walk backwards walk forwards mm. and he said let's dance so <laughs> <laughs> And he was literally holding my shirt at the back. Like he was, he was like, I'm with you. <laughs> Ready to run. Don't run, Sam. And so I took a step forward. The bull took a step back. And we did this for about 20 steps. And then the bull just went, fuck it, and walked off. Um, and Sam's like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, now we can go to where we went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the dance of uncomfortable distance serves me well. I've worked with people who will throw rocks at buffalo and horses and scream at them and I'm like don't do that (laughs) and they're like well don't go closer and I'm like okay you're welcome to hang back here Mm -hmm. if I try this dance of uncomfortable distance are you happy for me to do that while we're here on your country they're like yeah sure so I do it and they're just like oh wow that was so brave and it's so (laughs) weird like I'm often told I'm brave and in my head I always go oh well brave or stupid you can't know till the end (laughs) it's the fallacy of success where it's like oh yeah I'm brave because I have not been trampled into a sticky base at this exactly, point. Exactly, yeah. And there's a chance you will. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess I'm just a, a lucky person who enjoys taking reasonable risks. I love the comparison of, oh, well, we can't see it. We must be fine. And my immediate anxious oh. self went, no, no, it's like following an ex on social media, okay? <laughs> if, if you can see them and they're way over there, they're fine. Yes. You know, it's like sticking a barrel on Jaws, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know where he is. You mm-hmm. can kind of track him. He's over there. You're good. Yeah. It's when you don't see them that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I like the analogy. Yeah, because things we've talked a lot about, kind of your work and, and stuff like that, but we haven't really talked much about comedy. So uh, were you an archaeologist who realized that she was funny, or were you a comedian who happened to have an interest in archaeology? So where did the switch happen? I was an archaeologist that figured out I was funny. So it's one of those things, both archaeology and comedy are careers that people think aren't attainable. Mm-hmm. But I never had that perspective of either of them because when I was three years old, there were archaeologists digging on the farm next door. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. They get to dig in the dirt for a living. (laughs) I want that. And then with comedy, I moved to Adelaide to start my postgrad studies in February 2011 and Fringe was on and Mm. I went to Adelaide Fringe and I grew up quite close to Tom Gleeson, who's a comedian, and his mum taught me to play the organ and all of that. And so I'm like, oh, I'll say hi to Tom while I'm here. And we ended up hanging out and I was meeting all of these comedians. And so I remember being late at night in the Rhino Room Comedy Club in Adelaide, out the back, and... Tom and Will Anderson and Justin Hamilton were talking about how their gigs had gone that night, how their show was. And they were like, oh, well, this worked and this didn't quite work. And have you thought about this and have you tried that? And I thought, oh, wow, it's just a system. Mm. Like it's a language you can learn. And so that was in my head. And at the same time, I had started writing archaeology documentaries and shows that I wanted to get made. I wanted to tell these stories. Mm. And I had an idea for a show that I was 
wanting to make is a web series called Frontier Freak Show about the Northern Territory history. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to make it funny. So I looked up where do you learn how to write comedy and there was a weekend workshop with Tim Ferguson from the Doug Anthony All Stars at Afters just next door to Fox mm-hmm. Studios where we are now. And so I came down and did that for the weekend and that was really great. So it was about comedy screenwriting. But we'd all go to the pub afterwards and we were all telling yarns and everyone was cracking up at mine going, you should do stand-up. Mm-hmm. And I thought, they have no stake in this. They will never see me again. They're not blowing smoke. There's no agenda here. They just yeah. genuinely think I'm funny. Mm-hmm. And up until that point, I'd had a hard time accepting compliments. Like women are trained to go, oh, no, I'm not. Or, oh, you know. Deflect, you uh, minimise, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But I thought, fuck it, I'll take that one. And six weeks later, I was in Adelaide and I knew the guys at the Rhino Room. So I'm like, hey, should I try it? And they said, sure, come and do open mic on Monday. And I did, and they laughed, and it was so addictive. Like, it's <laughs> such a great feeling to make people laugh. Like, a whole room, it gets an energy. Love it. And so after that, I've just kept doing it. But it was something that I did as a hobby. Like, I never expected to make it a career but I was also writing more documentaries and things and going to conferences and pitching them into you know National Geographic and Discovery Channel and all that sort of thing none of them got picked up and I was writing one that instead of being a documentary I wanted to make it funny and someone said well why don't you have a chat to Ted who you met just before so Ted Robinson is the executive producer of Good Newsweek TV and yeah he loved the idea so I've kept working with him and it was in that process like I'm still gigging around the place and having fun with comedy and someone said to me oh you're the comedian from Darwin and I thought oh am I like (laughs) do I do I own that label now but in the discussions that we're having about the project it is funny and I am writing it and it's I have to say I'm a comedian because there's you don't get a certificate that says congratulations (laughs) you've arrived you are now a comedian but I've done couple of solo shows I'm writing my third one I've been performing in festivals since 2014 seven years like it's just it barrels on and suddenly you are yeah yeah it's odd it's funny because you mentioned the certificate thing and there is something very empowering about giving yourself permission to take on a label yes right like I found this and this was the simplest thing where it was like when I was starting out in photography and I was thinking like because I was working with a group and they're like you should come and do a gallery show with us you know put two or three images together on this brief you can help us break in the show and yeah it'll be great and I was like oh I don't know this shows how young I was I said I haven't really studied to be a photographer I haven't gone to uni I haven't you know I haven't even done a TAFE course I'm just self-taught can I really call myself a photographer and the looks I got back I was like what are you serious and so what I did is I went to Moo Cards no I got myself a business card that says Mm. Lucas Brown, photographer. Right. And you would be surprised how much that buoys you up. And you're like, oh, no, I'm a photographer. It's got my website on it with some of my work. Exactly. And being able to then own that label. And it's like, oh, I'm not just someone who takes photos. I am a photographer. Yeah. So I think, like you said, you know, I'm someone who writes jokes for my documentaries to make them not so boring to, no, I'm a comedian. I'm a comedy writer. I think yeah. that's that's a huge step to be able to own that. I think the the step for me that gave me that permission was, yes, writing on this show, but also performing my first hour-long solo show. Wow. There is a big difference between doing, you know, five minutes at an open mic or a 20-minute headline spot to then going, you have to have 
a whole show. And and shows have a title and they're about something and they mean yeah, something. Line, and yeah. So, yeah, and so they have a narrative. And this, I mean, North American or US comedy is often just lots of um, joke, 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 um, which I find exhausting. Like, please give us a narrative, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, you watch the spots that people do on the late night shows over there and you're just like, oh, let me breathe, you know? And I've been inspired by so many different comedians doing things. So I became a bit of a comedy fan before I even considered that it was possible for me to do it. So I would go and see three shows a night for a festival. I'd spend $1,000 on comedy. Wow. <laughs> this is before I knew about yeah. the wonders of an artist path. <laughs> um, if you're registered and performing, some artists let you in for free if they haven't sold all their seats. And so, yeah, now I can get $1,000 worth of free comedy when I go to a festival. But yeah, yeah, also audience preview shows are cheaper. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And that's the thing. Take advantage and take a risk. Go and see someone that you've never seen before. Like, mm. they appreciate your 20 bucks a lot more <laughs> than yeah. someone who's selling a 1,000 seats a night. It's the same as, um, I remember telling someone this, it's like, if I ever go to a concert, if I'm going to buy merch, I will buy merch for the opening act because they need it. Good on you. You know, especially if it's the second opening act, it's the local people who go on before the name opening act, yes. before the main show, which is how I have a very early Violent Soho EP. Oh, uh, awesome. A little cardboard one that they put together and it's still got pride of place on my shelf and I'm just like I knew those guys before they were big exactly and I think there's such a buzz with being at the edge of something new yeah yeah very much so so I think what I love about the shows I'm writing now the solo stand-up shows are they are archaeology comedy so when I started getting into comedy I kept it quite separate from the archaeology and I was learning how comedy works and how to tell a joke and be relatable and all that thing and I'm like archaeology is not relatable like nobody gets that like they don't understand what my job is like so some people are like is it dinosaurs <laughs> or indiana jones <laughs> paleontology guys keep up yeah it's a whole and other so field. I, I really struggled with that and so my first solo show was called chase the fun stuff which is basically my philosophy of life and in that i did 10 minutes on archaeology things and I had the talent scout from Gilded Balloon at Edinburgh Fringe come see my show on the last show. And she said, that 10 minutes, do that. Because only you can do archaeology comedy. Everyone can do, so I'm single. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we come to see you for that. Yeah. And so, and she said, can you write an hour on dead bodies? And I went, sure. <laughs> and I went, fuck <laughs> you know, she said, oh no now I have to write an hour on dead body exactly and bring it to Edinburgh Fringe so I did I wrote it it was called I See Dead People and I toured it to Adelaide Fringe in February 2020 and I had it locked in for Melbourne and Edinburgh and when I was at Adelaide Fringe it was amazing I did 15 nights in an 80 seat tent sold it out a few times, had really good ticket sales, had great media coverage, really enjoyed the show. And I had producers and presenters from all over come to the show. And out of that, I got offers for six more festivals and club gigs and things. So I booked all of that. So it was, uh, I was going to go Melbourne, then Hobart, then Salt Festival in regional South Australia, North Australia Fringe, Townsville, then Edinburgh, Bergen, Gothenburg, Stockholm, London. And I was like, yes, 2020 is my year. <laughs> <laughs> and no. And the cosmos looked down upon you and laughed. Well, this is the thing. 
so I, so I booked all these in. I, I locked them in and then I went home. I'm like, I'm going to need a grant for this. And there was Arts NT had a grant opening. It was closing on Monday the 16th of March for strategic projects. So once a year they choose a Northern Territory artist from any genre to lift their career to the next level. And so you have to show that you have that potential. And so now I had all of these bookings and I had letters of support from the world's leading comedy <laughs> bookers. And so I applied for it and of course Melbourne International Comedy Festival was cancelled the Friday before the Monday the applications were due so I rang them and like, do I still put this in? We don't know what's happening this year. And they said, yeah, put your application in and the committee will decide when they have more information later. And so as you know, it closed, I put it in and then everything was just progressively shutting down around the world and I'm like, oh, this is hell, this is not going to happen. And they approved it. I got it. So it's a $25,000 grant Jesus. from Arts NT that they granted to me on the condition that Edinburgh Fringe held my place for me in the 2021 program. And so they did. But then, of course, now it's 2021 and things aren't open. So now we're negotiating. So I'm in the Edinburgh Fringe and Gothenburg Fringe digital programs this year with my next show. And then their live programs in 2022. Mm. So that for me is amazing because, of course, everyone in the comedy industry lost everything. Yeah. And how do you come back? What sort of income is available? At least I know mm. I have funding set aside to pay for the expenses of that tour absolutely yeah. um, and so yeah it does feel a little bit like career interrupted which i'm sure everybody does yeah. and the show was called i see dead people how the hell do you take that to <laughs> somewhere that's lost a hundred thousand people you can't so you have a sticker on there going it was called that before i swear <laughs> to god it's the first show in a trilogy on death sex and religion so the archaeology of these things so i'm currently writing sexual history and it will premiere as a work in progress at darwin fringe festival in july and then I'll tour the digital festivals in August, September, and then it will do the Australian summer festivals and then the Europe summer festivals, uh, if it all works out. I mean, who knows? But yeah, so at the moment I'm researching the history of sex and I'm making it an interactive show where... So in I Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop you there because you yeah. just said, I'm researching the history of sex and I'm going to make it interactive. <laughs> and I'm sorry, it immediately goes to a comedy place where <laughs> I'm just like... Well, you see. No, please continue. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah. It's a digital interactive show, and yes. that doesn't mean fingers. Oh. It's, <laughs> I'm doing an online presentation with a software called Mentimeter, so it's like PowerPoint, but with QR codes, and the audience scans it with their phone, and they can answer questions and vote anonymously. Oh, that's cool. They can ask questions anonymously, and so I'm collecting all the data, and I'm putting it together, and so then the software will interpret the audience data in real time, mm. so I can say, this audience... 10% of them eat ass uh, compared to the ancient Greeks who, you know, so I still have to find that data. I don't know how many ancient Greeks ate ass, but um, <laughs> something along those lines. And so in I See Dead People, I ended up inserting a Q&A session at the end of it because I found that after the show, people would bail me up for an hour to tell me stories and ask me more about dead people because people are fascinated by this thing. And so I'm like, well, let's stick it in the show so I can get to my next gig, you know. And that was great and so interactive, but there were always some people that weren't game to ask their question in that environment because people would know it was them. Yeah. And so that's why I've decided to go the anonymous data collection route. Mm -hmm. Privacy assured we don't connect it with any particular person and so but then it's also it becomes this map of the sexual preferences of the world 
Really cool story. I have new neighbours in my apartment complex in Darwin and I was out in the garden doing something and Bernadette came past and we were chatting about plants and she's like, oh, so what do you do for a living? And I'm like, oh, you know, archaeologist, comedian. Sounds like such a wank. Like, how do you just drop that into a conversation? (laughs) And she's like, oh, my God, that's so cool. What are you working on now? And I said, oh, I'm writing my show about the history of sex. I'm researching sex. And she's like, my husband's a sex researcher. (laughs) what are the odds and so he has been researching sex as a public health academic for 20 years and he's written a book called doing it down under (laughs) great title for a book i know so he surveyed 19,000 people on how they shag and i'm like well that is now my data for how we shag in the present thank you bernadette's husband for saving me a ton of work exactly just (laughs) shortcut have a cup of tea with the neighbor (laughs) he sent me all of his academic papers and i've ordered a copy of the book it's out of print but it's one of those print on demand ones so who says people don't know their neighbors anymore well exactly yeah i like meeting my neighbors and finding out what kind of surprising things they they'll lob on me that's the thing it's a small world like that like Previous guest on the show, Catherine Van Arendonk, who's a TV writer in the States for Vulture. I made reference to a book I had read 10 years before that was very formative called Everything Bad is Good for You, which is about the hidden gems of, of how pop culture is structured and how it teaches you to appreciate it more and stuff. And it was I read it 10 years back and it made a huge impression on me. And she went, oh yeah, I went to college with that guy. <laughs> and I'm just like, well, I suppose that ruins... Yes, I've read this very good book. And he's like, yeah, I know that guy. It's like, oh man, really? The world is a very small town. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. I find all of these connections everywhere I go. And so it's one of the things that I've learned through doing comedy. So in the beginning, I thought people don't get archaeology. People are fascinated and my audience wants to be treated like an intelligent human being. And that's the kind of person I love, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I just geek out and make it funny and people are like that is so cool it was so weird like oh oh, maybe two months ago I was on Facebook on a hiking group and someone was asking about satellite phone versus personal locator beacon for remote NT work and I went oh so what I do is and she came back with oh my god I saw your show at Darwin Festival (laughs) (laughs) it was the highlight of my this is like six months later she's like I loved how it just came around and it was a conversation about dead bodies and and so I didn't see this comment for quite a while and she'd come back two hours later going oh my god that just made my day (laughs) and just the idea that People are still thinking about it six months later. Mm. And and I've had a couple of people say that to me. They'll think, oh, that's a new mess. No, that's that Karen covered that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's like like you're talking about you know, things being a small world. Do you know the McElroys? My Brother, My Brother and Me, Adventures no, and stuff like that. Well, there is a series of podcasts done by these three brothers, and they had a side podcast where they played Dungeons & Dragons with their dad okay. and told a massive, sprawling story. Yeah. And I was a big fan of that, and it was getting up to the end of it, and I was on like a Facebook group of like their like official kind of fan group, and we were talking about, like, like just joking about some of the stuff that was in there. I made some comment and was like, got some idea in my head, and it was like, because they were described as a sentient elevator, that was a horribly uncomfortable vor experience to go into and it was referred to as upsy your lifting friend and it was so creepy and weird at one point later in the story that elevator came back but they had had arms and legs grafted onto it so it was a mech now and i was like i had pacific brim on the brain for some reason and i'm like i could just imagine like you know instead of gypsy danger it's upsy daisy is the (laughs) is the mech and someone drew that and did like a vector graphic like it would be tampa graph on the side of a mech suit and it was the coolest thing. I remember like telling the story on the show and saying how cool it was that you know someone else picked up this 
really dumb joke idea I had made based on a really dumb joke from a podcast and made this thing and now that thing exists and if yeah. I wanted to I could get that on a laptop skin and then someone came to me on Twitter and said I was listening to the math of you and suddenly I was hearing about myself drawing a vector graphic for a <gasps> random person on the adventure zone fan so site cool. and we don't follow each other on Twitter now and I'm just like Small world. It is a very small world at times. And I love those connections mm. because it feels like there is meaning in the universe. Yeah. I'm a scientist. I don't. Yeah. Well, I'm not strictly a scientist. There's this big debate is archaeology a science or an art? And I think I've fallen down on it's an art that uses scientific methods. But I come from that research kind of a mm. rational perspective. There is lots of stuff in the world that doesn't have an explanation yet so it feels like meaning sometimes and you take meaning from things and this is so you've just been on my podcast yeah. me up later and to me that's about the meaning you assign to the objects in your life and mm. what's meaningful to you is where the stories lie yeah and, and the connections lie absolutely now we've got time for maybe one more topic and i know we had talked initially about this as being potentially the main topic for the show we've talked about all kinds of great stuff and i don't think we're gonna have any trouble finding an episode out of this, mm -hmm. but you were a mum quite early. I was a mum quite early. I still am a mum yes. forever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I became a single mum at 16 in a Catholic family, in a Catholic community. Oof. Yeah, I got kicked out of school at the end of year 10 because it was a Catholic school, and she's now 27. Yeah, I think... Being a mum has really determined how my life has turned out. Mm -hmm. It was interesting because I didn't finish high school. I didn't do year 11 or 12. And so I wanted to go to university and I was devastated that traditional path wasn't open to me. But then I started exploring different options and I could study a unit through the open university. This is before the internet existed. Yes. Yeah. That's a available thing. I studied social sciences study methods course, got a high distinction and a university let me in on that. And so I studied off campus part time, mm -hmm. it took me nine years to do my degree. But in that whole process of thinking, what am I going to study? A lot of people said to me, you have to be a teacher because you've got a child. You'll have the same hours, the same holidays. And I thought, that's not fair. You're not telling my sisters they can't be a hairdresser or a travel agent because one day they'll have kids. Mm -hmm. So I still get to choose what my life is and I chose archaeology and everyone's like you're stupid you will never get a job in archaeology you've got a child to consider how dare you waste this and so I was pretty stubborn got it and have had the most fortunate career and so I started out volunteering in the museum just before I graduated and then got short-term contracts there so I did uh, about six years in the museum plus um, sometime during then did some consultancy in the Northern Territory as an archaeologist and then spent three years in the National Archives managing their collection in the Darwin office and then the last 10 years of more than that been back just doing consultancy. So being a mum has shaped the why. Why do I do what I do? And it was always because I wanted to show her that it was possible. Mm. Yeah. And she has just made my life so much better. You know, well, you're a dad. You know how kids just focus your attention on what's important. And I remember, so I think I have a tendency to stress about stuff and see the negative. And I remember she was about three or four we were walking downtown, we dropped our car off to get new tyres and it was a hot summer day in Gunnedah 
and I was shooing the flies going, gosh, the flies are bad. And she's like, yes, mummy, but the butterflies are good. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just the sweetest thing. Like, yeah, and that's who she is. Mm -hmm. She's like, yep, mum, that's shit, but some things are good. (laughs) (laughs) And she's 27 now. We never had that adolescent falling out that Mm -hmm. kids tend to do with their parents so we've always been quite close and when she was 17 finished school I moved to Adelaide to start my postgrad studies I asked if she wanted to come too and she's like no I'd like to work in Darwin for a bit and I moved back to Darwin and she's still there so we live five minutes away and that becoming independent at 17 was a great thing I ended up renting a room in her share house (laughs) <laughs> two years while I was living in Adelaide, or 18 months, just as I was coming and going from fieldwork in the Territory. And it was, she was like, Mum, my house, my rules, this is how we do it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and it was lovely to see her grow in that and really set up a different dynamic between us because it wasn't me going, have you taken the rubbish out or whatever, like I would be if it was my house that she was in. And so it's just become this beautiful friendship and I you know, love it a bit. She's my whole world. So the question is, has she accepted archaeology as something she's interested in or does she have no interest whatsoever? <laughs> this is a really interesting thing because her whole life, well, since she was two, I started studying archaeology. So it's 25 years, more than 25 years now. She'll be 28 in August. And I married an archaeologist. I was married for 10 years. So we got together when she was six... And we went to Tassie, where he was from, and that whole three weeks driving around Tasmania going, oh, look at those ruins, she'd be like, oh, you archaeologists. (laughs) She was so sick of all these archaeological conversations. When she was 16, I was divorced. I took her to London uh, to go to art school for a week. She's an amazing artist. And there was a Roman wall in London. And I'm like, look, Phoebe, that wall's 2,000 years old. And she was like, so? I've seen 20,000-year-old rock art. (laughs) Can't impress a teenager. But then in recent years, she's said, oh, you know, I really just love how objects have stories. I'm like, yes, that's archaeology. (laughs) Got her. Well, this is the thing. She can do whatever she likes. And I think she is a very independent person and she has the most amazing mind where she thinks her own things and she wants to be independent. So I think in many ways there's the potential to think that if she follows in my footsteps, she's not living her own life. I have said, and she feels this as enormous pressure, even though it's not intended as such, she is smarter than me and she is funnier than me. (laughs) And I just wish she gave herself the freedom and that permission to practice that with joy. (laughs) I don't achieve that all the time. It's a very difficult thing to do. I fully respect the fact that she wants to build her own life and she finds it hard to choose but when she does make decisions she makes really good ones i don't think it's a lovely place for us to end it so if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet casey where would they look i am at caseymartinstone.com or i am at caseymartinstone on twitter facebook and instagram on linkedin i'm karen martinstone so i've got to put the casey in there somewhere my website caseymartinstone.com is where everything is you can find all the social links there my podcast dig me up later you can sign up for the weekly newsletter which is small finds which is cute little interesting things i come across and yeah there'll be ticket sales and stuff all there so thank you very much for coming on the show this has been fantastic 
Thanks very much for having me. I loved it. Thank you very much to Casey Martinstone for her time. When I asked Casey for her cocktail recommendations, she said she didn't drink much or often and has sweet and simple tastes, like a Cure Royale as favored by a certain author's favorite Belgian detective. However, she also mentioned a chocolate crackle cocktail that she had at the Gin Palace in Melbourne, and I couldn't help myself. I looked up a couple of recipes, smashed a few things together, and came up with my own variation. And so I present the Wandering Crackle. In a shaker full of ice, combine three quarters of an ounce of spiced rum, three quarters of an ounce of chocolate liqueur, three quarters of an ounce of coconut rum, a third of an ounce of cream, a third of an ounce of coconut cream, and a quarter ounce of chocolate syrup. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass and garnish with a dash of cocoa powder. If you're going to go, make sure to leave a well-pickled corpse for future generations. Enjoy! Matthew, this week, is recorded in Moore Park, New South Wales, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. When I have them, new episodes are released every two weeks, and let me tell you listeners, I do in fact have them. I have several recordings in the pipe, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you all think. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at The Math of You, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Or you can be one of those really nice people that pledges a higher amount, as much as you want. In fact, in April this year, when I unexpectedly lost my job, I saw a huge swell in patrons on that Patreon, as well as a number of direct Kofi payments, which honestly, guys, just made my heart swell and really helped me through a difficult time. I'm still not working at the moment, which is partially responsible for the amount of new episodes that are coming through. Patrons get physical rewards, cursive tweets, and thanks on the show, which I'll be doing for these people. So thank you to Drew Lawton, Miles Schneiderman, Becky Graves, The Great Bambina, Scott Paladin, and Casey Monica. You are all aces in my book. Additionally, I've passed the $100 threshold, 
which means I'll be recording a special patron-only stream of all the things that I've been enjoying over the past couple of months. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or whatever they're calling it now, even Spotify, Stitcher, places like that, and leave a five-star rating. It'll help people find the show. Also, if you leave a nice review and send it to me, I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find a Spotify playlist going all the way back to episode one. That's more than a day of music, including this song. It's a Tap Dancer's Dilemma by Diablo Swing Orchestra. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe to get that new music in your ears. Next time, it's the revenge of Camille Washington. And get your harpoons and fireballs ready, because we are talking about Mortal Kombat. Join me, won't you? Mortal Kombat.